Well, yeah, Andrew, I can get used to singing that song. Thanks. That's uh, beautiful. We've got a lot of things happening, folks. There's a lot going on. As you know, you've heard many of the announcements earlier uh, today, and, and just we're preparing. We're getting ready. You know, Easter's, Easter's coming, and we're thrilled with that. Something else that we're uh, approaching together as a church, if you were uh, at the congregational meeting this past one, um, we, we came forward and, and let everybody know that the deacons are considering right now the possibility of engaging in a, a building project. And we gave you some, some of the reasons why behind that and, and some things about our heritage as a church, you know, over the, the past 50 years, how that's been a part of our church's lives and generations before have been faithful in this way. And, and there's a lot of excitement around that. We really want to understand our congregation and, and your perspective on that. And whether you're a member here, a regular attender, whether you've just come recently, you know, whoever you are, we really want to understand your thoughts. And so in, the, in this next upcoming week, there's going to be a survey uh, that comes out to you. If, you're, um, if your email address, if you've given that to the church, it will come uh, in your email. And so we just want to understand what, what, what your thoughts are. And, and we want to make sure that we're walking in tune with the Lord. And one of the ways we do that is we want to listen closely to how he's working in the hearts of his people here. And if for some reason uh, you are not on our email list or you'd rather participate by paper, uh, you can let us know that as well. Just go ahead and call the church office and the phone number is right there on your bulletin. So you can call in and, and, uh, and just request a paper copy and that's, we're happy to get that to you. But we're looking forward to, um, to what's ahead and, and hearing about how God's working in your heart uh, regarding all this. You, you, know, you received a letter um, about two weeks ago now from Chris Sodergren, our, our deacon board chairman, requesting and asking that you pray in certain areas. So, so we've heard about this together. We've been praying about this together for the past several weeks, and, and now we just want to hear from you. So uh, we look forward to that. And uh, it's exciting stuff. Um, all right, well, we're continuing today in our uh, journey through 1 Corinthians. And the passage this morning deals with the issue of hasty judgments. And you might be going, well, what do you mean by hasty? Well, it's a descriptive word. Hasty is a word that actually means with excessive speed and carelessness. And uh, let me ask you, how, do, do you, do you often engage in hasty judgments? Uh, like most of us, author and pastor John Burke assumed that he was not a person given to hasty judgments. But in case he was wrong, he made a decision. He decided to try an experiment. For a whole week, he did his best to keep track of his careless judgments of other people. And uh, here's what he discovered. First thing he said is, judging others can be fun. It makes you feel good. Because if we're honest, we need to admit that uh, we're not quite sure if we would even go through a day without in some way engaging, engaging in some form of, of, of judgment that's careless in that way. And he, then he gives several examples of that that we can certainly all relate to. I mean, you think about this, you know, a, a parent uh, maybe condemns a son numerous times for a messy room or, or judges a daughter for being moody. Because, of course, we know that it especially bothers us when we're feeling moody, right? Um, even our dog can get the hammer of condemnation for the breath, right? Come on. And you might be thinking, well, hold on, you know, does that mean that any time a parent corrects a kid for a messy room, that's always and automatically an act of hasty judgment? And the answer is no, of course not. Um, but there's a way we're called to correct 
for the good and growth of the child that actually values mercy. And there's also a correction that, that devalues with hasty judgment. Um, but then he goes on to describe other things. You know, you think about this. You, you, you watch the news. And how many of us are sitting there, you know, with just going, these idiotic people. Or, or, or you watch reality TV shows. Why do reality TV shows exist? I would say one part of the reason they're there is so we can sit there and, and look at people and go, man, that was dumb. That was childish. That was foolish. That was arrogant. That's why they're there. You know, there are times I get in my car and I drive. And you know what I find if I'm on the road? For some reason, there is a host of inept drivers that surround me. They all should have flunked their driving test. And of course, then I can throw in a little condemnation of you know, the Department of Public Safety for good measure. Why isn't that line there? You know, Janet, I'm famous for going, okay, Janet, that's a dumb sign. Look at that sign. That sign doesn't work. If I took that sign, literally, I'd drive off the road right now. Like, what is going on? Um, or, or, or we go to the store. Here's one. You go to the store. You ever find yourself just kind of complaining about the lack of organization? Like, why can't I find? Notice this. Why can't I find what I want? Yeah, first world problems, buddy. Come on. Really? But that's me, sure. You know, and then, and then of course, we're walking through the store sometimes, and we get tortured by the Muzak. Yeah, there is musical abuse that happens every day in retail stores, right? Like, what? who, who chose that? Or, or what about this? We stand in the shortest line, and, and, uh, and we're already, like, the people in front of us, this line is way too long. Why? Can't you read the sign? It says 10 items or less. And you're there, you know, how often are you kind of looking at the cart, like, how many are in there? I, that was 12. Come on. Of course, maybe you never do that, right? But that's the thing. Hasty judgments are frequent. They flow out of our hearts and minds often and easily. And, and the thing is, is what often is going on is that we are actually judging other people by standards that we would resent being held to by them. And that's part of the hastiness. Uh, when we do that, when we engage in hasty judgments, we, we kind of can make ourselves feel good because we, in our own minds at least, portray ourselves as being uh, better than those that we're judging. Now, why should hasty judgments be avoided by the people of God? There's a lot of reasons. Because they distort our Christian life and witness, because they're fed by and feed pride, because they crush those that they're placed upon, because they are an affront to God's grace, and because they flow from a distortion of the gospel. And so if you would, go ahead and, and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And, and we're going to address this issue as Paul confronts the Corinthian church. Because this is the word of God, would you please stand and follow along as I read? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, 
It's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that you may, be, may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would um, open our hearts to the realities that you bring forward in this passage. May your spirit touch our lives and convict us in areas where we too have engaged in hasty judgments. And may we grow and learn to, to live in a different way. Uh, we, we pray that you would be pleased in what you accomplish. And we give you thanks for the gospel, for the mercy that you give us in Jesus, for the reality that he received um, your true and holy judgment in our place. And that because of him, we have hope. And we thank you that you rescue and save sinners of every sort, including those who stumble in, into hasty judgment. And so we pray we'd live lives before you that glorify you. And we ask that you'd use this time now to accomplish that within us. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So as we explore this passage this morning, we're going to uncover remedies against hasty judgments and their distorting effects. And, uh, and in doing so, we're going to be calling ourselves really to remember Several things. The, the apostle saying, hey, don't forget this. The tendency is for our minds to kind of drift and to go other places and to lose sight of these things. And that's how we end up slipping into this kind of living in, in, in this kind of judgmental, hasty way. And so the first thing he calls us to remember is this. Remember, God's people, especially leaders, ultimately answer to God alone. God's people, especially leaders, ultimately answer to God alone. Uh, he says this in verses one through four. And you'll notice he, he's, he's just come off of this beautiful, climactic sort of crescendo of all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And he's countering, of course, what they've been saying earlier. Well, I am of Cephas. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of this person. I'm of that person. In other words, I belong to them in some ways. And he's saying, why would you say you belong to them? In Christ, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What a, a narrow, kind of flat, dry way of, of approaching life in Christ. And so he turns that around, and now he turns and says, when you are looking at leaders, you need to look at them in a certain way. And so he's saying, let Man, regard us in this manner. So he's talking about himself and Apollos again as servants of Christ 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. When you're looking at Paul or Apollos or any leader, realize something. They're stewards and servants. Servants of who? Christ. They're there to serve him. Uh, Implication, in a sense, ultimately, not you. And, and, And what are they stewards of? The mysteries of God, these, these beautiful things of the gospel that haven't been seen in ages past, that come from God. They're, they're stewarding those things, the teachings of the truth, the gospel itself. And so those are the two things that Paul sees himself as, and, and as Apollos sees him as. And so he's, he's saying, hold on to that. We're entrusted with something. What's that? The gospel. And in the same way that a steward, a steward could be a slave in the first century, they would manage the estate or the household of a master, or or a patron of some kind, as servants, stewards, apostles, teachers, they work for who? They work for the Lord. And so the rest of the whole passage develops that idea. A steward is required to do what? Well, verse 2 tells us, to be trustworthy. That's the main thing a steward should do. Um, I I like uh, an illustration I heard many years ago. If you can imagine, you know, a steward of uh, someone's um, accounts, of some sort, and, and then the person who, who comes forward, maybe, maybe someone's a money manager for them, and they're supposed to invest the funds on their behalf, and then, you know, allow those assets to grow. Could you imagine if the person comes to the bank and says, hey, you know, I'd really like to, uh, you know, with, withdraw uh, this amount of money. I'm sorry, I can't give that to you right now. Well, why is that? Yeah, I, I bought season tickets to the Warriors games, you know? I mean, what? <laughs> that's, not, that's not yours. What are you doing? And in the same way, a steward is, must be seen and must be found trustworthy to care for what's been entrusted to them by the one in charge, the one who owns those resources. In this case, a master. In this case, God himself. And what, what are they entrusted with? The gospel. The truth of the gospel, which is why, again, the word of the cross that Paul mentioned before is still the theme throughout this section. It's a singular responsibility and duty. And, and so then, in light of that, Paul then goes on to say, that means being examined by you, Corinthian church, Paul says, it's not a big deal to me. It really isn't. Uh, I love that. This, this phrase is where I feel like Paul is most like a jazz musician right here. Why is that? Because I've mentioned this before. A jazz musician, when they play, they're not playing so that the audience will like them. Unlike pop and other things, which again, I, I enjoy those music sometimes too, that's fine. But I'm just saying, a jazz musician, essentially they're playing. Why? Because I need to play. And you're welcome to be in the room and listen if you like, that's great. You're welcome to walk out the door too, that's fine. I'm still going to play because I need to. Because that's what I've been built to, to do, that's why I'm here. And the same way, what Paul is saying is, I am not doing what I do in ministry to pander to the masses, to have you like me. I'm not like the little puppy dog. Oh, do you like me? Do you like me? Oh, wait, what if I do this? What if I do that? That's not it. Sadly, many people in ministry today, that's how they operate things. Every decision is made up based upon, you know, will they like me or not? You know, how how do we get more people in the room? What do we got to do to attract? It's all about that. Paul is saying, look, I I am not here to pass your examination because frankly, I don't work for you. I work for the Lord. And, and in the same way, I think all who are called into ministry need to operate that way. And all who are in 
the ministry serving in various capacities, which in many, which is really everybody. All of us have been given gifts by God. Gifts by God. All of us are called to serve Him. We need to serve God in light of that as well. I'm not doing this for human approval. You realize if you do things for human approval, you are always going to be kind of just empty and frustrated and sad. Because human approval is not only inaccurate, it's also fickle. Have you noticed that? I I still think back to, you know, uh, the end of World War II and what Winston Churchill did in in many ways to to defeat um, Hitler, the Third Reich. And certainly I'm grateful for our country and and all that, you know, our... our military and, and our leaders did as well. It was certainly one of those moments in history where you look back and you go, man, God was merciful. The right leaders, the right time, the right place came together to defeat that. But of Winston Churchill, it has been said, and I think it's true, he actually defeated Hitler with the English language. That's what he did. Do you know what happened when the war was over? Out of there. Gone. The guy could not win an election to save his life. Why? The people were done with him. Thanks, Winston. You know, don't call us, we'll call you. We're not going to call him. I mean, he was literally just shuffled to the side. People are fickle. And the same thing happens in our lives as well. When we start running around and trying to operate in such a way that we receive the accolades of human beings. So this is a place where Paul is demonstrating, hey, I'm not doing that. I'm going to live in such a way where I'm recognizing one key thing. I am a steward and servant of God himself. And that means I don't live for the approval of people. And all of us need to be in the same place, especially those in leadership in the gospel ministry. And uh, and then he goes on to, to describe something else, which I also think is fascinating. End of verse 3. I don't even examine myself. <laughs> what? He's, like going, he's going, hey, I don't really care about your opinion, but just to be fair, I don't care about my opinion either. It doesn't matter. Now, does that mean he doesn't look at his heart and examine things prayerfully before God and go, Lord, you know, how can I honor you more? He's, he's not you know, in that place of the Beatitudes which, by the way, the Beatitudes describe a lot about motives and, and what's happening inside. No, that's not his point. His point here is just that I am not the ultimate arbiter of what is right, true, and good in my life and ministry because that prerogative belongs to God alone. I have a singular responsibility and duty, and it is evaluated singularly by the one who's given me that charge God Himself. And so, in many ways, it's, 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 look, I already have a master, and it's not you. And I serve Christ, not you. And, of course, this is in the face of all the criticism he's been receiving from the Corinthian people. Uh, that church was saying, well, Paul, he's not, you know, the way he preaches, I'm going to give him a, a 4.2 out of 10, you know, probably. And the way he leads, and, you know, I don't know, I'm going to give him maybe a, maybe a 5 but man, if you, if, if you saw Cephas, the way that guy leads, he just comes in, man, bam, lays it down. And Paul's going, yeah, no, I, I, I serve one master, it's not you. I'm one master's steward, and it's not you. 
And, and this mystery that he's been given, he's given us, the gospel, yeah, it's not your message, it's his message. And the salvation, that wasn't your idea. Salvation in Christ was his idea. And by the way, that salvation, that was his idea, he accomplished it, not you. And because of that, your critique of me and my preaching manner and leadership is not important, and my own evaluation of myself in those things is really not important because I serve the Lord. In many ways, he's, he's saying to the Corinthian church, who exactly do you think you are? You're not my judge, the Lord is. And, uh, and then he clarifies from there what that means. But I was trying to think of, of an analogy about this. And by, by the way, so Clayton Valley Church family, just let me tell you something right now. I'm preaching this because the text says this and it's true, but I want to commend you because you are an incredibly tender-hearted, non-judgmental, supportive church of your leadership. And it is a joy to be your pastor, to be a pastor here. I just want you to know that. I am very grateful for that. And so um, please know that. I think Pastor Andrew feels the same way. He's nodding. Good. Because I was going to say, it was too bad, dude. You're not preaching today. I am. So... But he is nodding and smiling. So he feels that way too. I think Eric, I think our other leaders, they feel similarly. And so we're grateful for that. But may this passage be a warning and something for us to hold on to and heed. How do we approach this? And how do we deal with one another as well? We need to be very, very careful in that. Uh, I was thinking of uh, a way this kind of shows up in, in daily life that I think we might be able to relate to. So if you can imagine, maybe you know, you're at a I don't know, department store, and you've got two husbands in the waiting area of the women's dress section. And by the way, if you don't know that there's a section like that, well, there is. There is. It's a, typically two chairs. And uh, they would used to, in the, back in the old days, they would have you know, magazines on them. Now everybody's got a phone. There's no magazines anymore. But it's kind of like you can wait there, and then, and then you know, um, your wife, or, or it could be a friend, or, or a daughter, or somebody else, that, you know, they can come out and show you, hey, what do you think? You know, okay, and they can kind of go back and forth. And so just imagine there, and uh, maybe there's two husbands, both, you know, with well-intentioned yet slightly glazed looks on their eyes. <laughs> you know, they're trying to be there. And then one of the men's wife comes out, and she looks and she goes, honey, what do you think of this dress? And then the moment he's about to say, honey, I think... The other husband, who is not her husband, stands up and goes, you know, honestly, the, that cut on that dress makes you look a little wide. <laughs> What's going to happen in that moment? I don't know. I, I'm thinking a punch in the face, maybe from the husband, or, I, you know. I mean, it would be so inappropriate. You'd be just like, whoa, let's separate these two. You can leave now. And, you know, why? Why is that outrageous? Well, because... She is not asking your opinion at all. You have no bearing on the situation. Essentially, it's irrelevant why you're saying it. Who do you think you are? And in the same way, I think Paul is addressing the Corinthian church on this level because they are uttering and espousing judgments that, frankly, he's not asked their opinion. And it's not their opinion to have because he's not serving them He's serving the Lord. Let's be careful. Whenever 
any of us engage in a hasty judgment with anyone, you realize that we're implying in that moment that that person is some way subject to us. As Paul says in Romans 14, who are you to judge the servant of another? So the first remedy against hasty judgment, remember, God's people, especially leaders, ultimately answer to God alone. But now Paul moves to give us another remedy. And he says, remember, God's penetrating judgment comes on the day of the Lord. Find that in verse 5. Paul says, don't go on passing judgment. Notice he says, before the time. You know, the time, what's the time? Yeah, it's specific. He's addressing a specific time. There's going to come a time for that. Well, what's that? And then he goes on to tell us, wait until the Lord comes. Whoa. Yeah, there's an appointed time when Christ returns, the day of judgment, when Christ himself is the sovereign, perfect judge of all. Totally accurate completely and fully just. And at that time, notice he's going to evaluate several things. What does he evaluate? He's going to come and bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. What's that? He goes on to tell us. And disclose the motive of men's hearts. Okay, he's going to bring to light things that are hidden. We we saw earlier in this very same uh, section of the book that no one knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person within them. And a lot of times, hasty judgments do involve imputing motives to other people. And we've talked about that in the past as well. It's both unwise and unbiblical to do that. Well, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're... You have have no idea. Um, Many people have said that, you know, I I have a lot of discernment. And I'm kind of going, I think you're having a hard time discerning that you don't have that gift. Sorry. But there's a way in which the motives of the heart, they matter to God, and yet they are hidden from others. And this time, this day of the Lord, judgment from the Lord Jesus, um, it's referred to in other places as the Bema Seat judgment. For believers, it is a judgment under rewards. And that'll be described later. But he's saying, why are you judging before the time? Why would you do that? You're preempting, in some ways, the rightful judgment that's coming from God when you engage in hasty judgments of others. And so Jesus is going to evaluate the apostles' motives and work, all leaders in every ministry's motives and work, all brothers and sisters who serve him in their motives and work. He's going to bring it all to light. I think also there's an interesting connection between Paul saying earlier, I don't examine myself. You know why? I don't know about you, but can you always tell what your motives even are? I can't. You know, it's sort of like, Chris, look in there and see what's going on. And I'm kind of like, I see a blue shirt. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think motives are often mixed, aren't they? feel like there's a sense in which Paul saying this, I don't examine myself, it's a, it's a great relief to him. You know why? Because 
God sees deeper than anything I can see. God knows my heart in, in, in truth and goodness, the elements that are there from his grace and also the elements of sin that are still there because sin still indwells all. Uh, even those who have come to Christ, right, we still wrestle with indwelling sin though we've been made new creatures. Old things have passed away, new things have come. We are different and yet we still battle. The already not yet tension that we live in right now is something that, that causes us to admit that. But here, we see here, Paul, Paul is going, that day of judgment, God's going to bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and to close the motives of people's hearts. Whoa. Is that sobering or what? And now the question is, well, why am I engaging in a hasty judgment when that time is coming? Why would I do that? Not to mention... What's happening in my heart as I engage in this hasty judgment? That's going to be brought to light too. And I love how Paul ends this phrase. Look at the end of verse 5. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Whoa. Do you realize what Paul's doing here? He's saying, God's grace is so great so full, Christ's work in you is so powerful, the Holy Spirit's indwelling you and giving you resurrection power from the age to come to live in a new way. And in light of all these beautiful things, when that day of judgment comes, you will actually receive praise from God. Whoa. Other places in the Bible would talk about the Lord saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Something to anticipate. Notice it's all in that day, within the day of the Lord. Um, a day that, that involves several different things that will happen. But within that, that part of God's work in, in redeeming a broken universe God's going to be looking at, are we faithful to the gospel? Are we, in fact, taking the mysteries that he's given us and holding to that? It's critically important that we do that. So we need to ask ourselves a question. What does waiting for the day of the Lord look like in my daily life? We talk about that, right? We're waiting for the day. We're waiting for his return. Waiting isn't just sitting around. <laughs> waiting isn't just uh, on a couch. That's not the point. Wait, waiting is, has the idea of being anticipating, you know, uh, eager, looking ahead to something. You're excited. You're on the edge of your seat. You can't wait. We're waiting for the day of the Lord. Uh, the, the picture is more of a, like a watchman uh, who's guarding a, a, a city in the night and, and scanning the horizon and looking, aware, awake. That's waiting. What does the waiting for the day of the Lord look like in my daily life? Doesn't it mean that I'm going to be walking away from hasty judgments? Isn't my engaging in or not engaging in hasty judgments an indicator, in fact, of whether or not I'm actually waiting for the Lord? I think Paul's saying here, yes, definitely. So the first remedy against hasty judgment Remember, God's people, especially leaders, 
ultimately answer to God alone. The second is remember God's penetrating judgment comes on the day of the Lord. And lastly, we find the third, which is remember this third remedy against hasty judgment. Remember the gift of the gospel humbles all who receive it. The gift of the gospel humbles all who receive it. Uh, receive it. Look, look at verse 6. He says, Brethren, I've applied this figuratively to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that you may learn something. What is it they need to learn? Look at what he says. Not to exceed what is written so that none of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. Paul's saying, you, you need to learn something. Okay, what do I got to learn? You got to learn not to exceed what is written. Now, what does that mean? And believe me, there's a lot of views on this in terms of people working this thing through, and there has been for a while. Some would see, uh, don't exceed what is written as being the Old Testament as the church's scripture at that time. And certainly when this was written, that, that was um, very much available to all. God's word there put together by God himself. The, the, the term that's used here for what is written is actually in the Greek, the, the, a word that can be translated what stands written. That's the idea. Jesus used that word, by the way, when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Whenever, whenever the enemy came to Jesus with a temptation, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? Jesus responded with, it is written, or it stands written. In other words, it was written in the past, it remains written now, and continues written into the future. And that's the same phrase that's used here. So, so it could be, yes, the Old Testament as the church's scriptures. Others would, would specify it more narrowly as the, the Old Testament scripture passages that Paul's already referenced here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that's, that's possible. Others take it to refer um, to... Um, kind of like a, a, a maxim or a, or a saying that uh, the, the Corinthian believers had, possibly. Uh, and that will happen later in the book. So Paul is going to quote what they've said. And so there's a way that can be set up, and it's possible he's doing that here. But it seems, it seems best in light of the immediate context. Let's remember where we've come from, okay? So the word of the cross is the foolishness that nullifies the wisdom of the world. You remember that? So that's what he's been talking about this whole time. And then that's... Uh, where we find a, a, uh, he's addressing or confronting this notion that there's sort of a second-level, uh, self-generated, exclusive spiritual tier above and beyond that word of the cross. That's what the false teachers were teaching. Yeah, there's, there's that, but hey, let's get savvy, let's get wise, let's get sophisticated, let's appeal to everybody around us. And so we're going to have this, this other tier, an exclusive tier, beyond what stands written and so he's saying, no, instead of that, hold to the word of the cross. Hold to the gospel, once for all delivered to the saints. Hold to the things of the faith, as other passages would describe. Now, how can we tell if we've fallen prey to this temptation to go beyond what is written, to not hold to that gospel exclusively? Well, there's one way to tell, one word, arrogance. That's it. Notice verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So, so here Paul is using x-ray questions, three of them, three x-ray questions to kind of help them to see where they're really at. Um, the arrogance that they displayed 
toward one another and toward leadership showed clearly that they were going beyond what was written. And so that first question, who regards you as superior? What's the answer? Nobody, except you. Um, secondly, you know, what do you have that you didn't receive? What's the answer? Nothing. <laughs> and then thirdly, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Really, to, to, to act that way is to act out of connection with reality. And so the, the, the idea would be you, what you've received as a gift, that which is written, rather than going beyond it in arrogance or tweaking it or, or trying to make it more, uh, quote-unquote, effective from your vantage point, is in fact demonstrating that you don't get what you've received from God. You don't grasp it. And, and then in terms of a broader application, whenever I'm hastily judging someone, I'm forgetting that what I have in Christ, every part of salvation, everything that I enjoy, is 100% a gift of his grace. And, and to pretend otherwise is to go beyond what's written. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but maybe you have. If you've ever b- bought a piece of furniture or something from Ikea, you ever done that? And you gotta admit, prices are pretty good, right? Pretty good, well-designed stuff. But often, if you buy from Ikea, what do you have to do? You're gonna have to put it together yourself, Right? And, and, and what are they going to give you? They're going to give you that little Allen wrench, you know? That always slips when you're trying to turn the thing. Like, your hand's getting all tired. Like, come on, you know, let's go. And so if you've got one, and maybe you want to get one, you can get one of those power tool things that has that bit on the end and just go, you know, and you're in. You're done. That's a thought. Father's Day is coming up. <laughs> no, anyway. But the point would be, you're trying to assemble this thing. Well, you know what? you got to read those directions very carefully. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I have in the past misread those. And here's the sad thing. Chris, they're mostly pictures. I know. I know. You know, but if you, if you don't have it at the right angle, right, because there's like two holes on one side and there's three holes on the other side, and that's in the picture. If you don't turn it the right way, you're putting it together backwards. Next thing you know it, you're putting this thing up. And you're like, wait a minute. Why is the front side totally unfinished? Um, that's because it's the wrong way. Then what are you doing? You've got to disassemble it. I mean, if you don't follow the directions, you end up with a different thing than what was designed. And, and that's the problem. When you don't follow what's written, you end up with something else. And so when we go beyond what's written in the Christian life, we end up living something other than the Christian life. So we've got to remember, the gift of the gospel, it really does humble all who receive it. And then Paul goes on from there and goes into this just brilliant, um, sarcastic, and yet insightful confrontation of the arrogance of the Corinthian church. And, and by the way, for those of you who struggle with ungodly sarcasm... I'm one of them. Hi. This gives us hope. You can use sarcasm in a godly way. Pray for my family. I'm still learning, okay? I'm sorry. I'm still learning. But Paul here, he does that. And he, he launches into this, this uh, 
way of kind of using sarcasm to unveil the things that the Corinthian church was holding on to that didn't honor God and betrayed the fact that they weren't holding to the gospel, they were going beyond what was written. So he begins in verse 8, you know, you're already filled because you've already become rich. Yeah, you, you're, you're rich. And then he goes on to say, you become kings without us. And then he gives a little aside. I wish you had become kings. We might have reigned with you. <laughs> you know, that might have been cool. So he's like, yeah, you're kings. We're not. We're literally your kings. Then verse 9, you know, he displays that even more. And he says, we as apostles... God has exhibited apostles last of all, men condemned to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Here, Paul is pulling uh, out a, a cultural reality of that time, and that was that when Roman generals would enter the city of Rome in the, in the military processional after victory, and they had all those victory arches there in Rome, and they would march through the arches, you know, commemorating past victories that they had undergone. Uh, typically, in tow, they would have uh, the prisoners of war. And those prisoners of war would be condemned to die in the arena. And so speak, he's speaking of people who were condemned to be executed, and, and they were presented to the entire city as sort of a spectacle. It was, it was sort of a, an act of theater in some ways. And Paul emphasizes that, that the... the Apostles and those who travel and preach the gospel from place to place, when they enter any city, they're, they're foreigners, they have few rights, they have no prestige, they have the same status as slaves, criminals, and prisoners of war who are condemned to die. And so they're regarded as pitiful or, or doomed because they preach Jesus, the crucified Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Again, foolishness. And so they, these are, this is sort of the, the place that, that Paul describes himself. And he describes that in verse 10 even more. We're fools for Christ's sake. And then he gives the contrast and sarcasm. Oh, but you're, you're prudent in Christ, but we're weak. Oh, but you're strong, you're distinguished, but we're without honor. And then he, then he from there, after kind of giving those sarcastic contrasts, and of course, if you're the Corinthians, you're going, well, wait a minute, what? You know, it's kind of a wild way to be disarmed, right? It's sort of like, wait, we are? No, we're not. No, we're not. Well, we are. We're acting like we are. Yeah, you're right, we are. You can kind of see how he's pastorally doing this to help them see things. And then he gets very candid. To this present hour, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly clothed, we're roughly treated, we're homeless, we toil, we work with our own hands, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure. He's talking about their life. He's talking about what he's gone through. Matter of fact, in the second letter to Corinth, he's going to describe that even more. These have been hard days for Paul. He suffered a lot. This wasn't, this wasn't a time of, of ease. And he's just, he's gone from kind of sarcastically kind of opening up and, and helping them to see things and using that as a tool to kind of cause them to pause and go, wait a minute, is that us? Are we thinking that about us? I think we are. And then he's going into, hey, you know what genuine gospel ministry oftentimes means? It's this. And I think for us, I think we need to ask the question, what, what, what are our expectations? You know, what, what do we think about this? Because here, what Paul's doing is he's unmasking their false ambitions. False ambitions that are more in accordance with the age of the world. This time, this era, this place. 
And I think we need to ask ourselves, what do I actually expect if I'm really going to walk as a follower of Jesus in openness and candor, in grace also, in a winsome way? You know, we're not trying to walk around and deliberately, I'm going to offend you for offending's sake. That's not the point. But we are called to walk in truth and love. And when that happens, what do we expect from the world around us exactly? And so what Paul does is he takes all the ambitions of security and prominence and he just flips them upside down right here. It's like, you, you, you really want to be one who's a steward of God's mysteries? You really want to be one who's serving him in fullness and in truth? Well, you know what's going to happen? All those things that most of the world would desire and cling to and chase after in terms of prominence and security and affluence. And guess what? Whoop, flipped upside down. It's almost like, no, our, our, our realization is that as stewards of God's mysteries. We are wealthy in him and yet in all these other things that that most people in the culture would count as being dear and precious and noteworthy. We don't have those things. Um, And so the gospel disarms pride by by unmasking the ambitions of, of the age that we live in. And the gospel also disarms pride by overturning expectations of status and security. And so he, he, he goes on to say, how do we respond when that's happening? Um, in verse 12, we're reviled, we bless. We're persecuted, we endure. Notice it's not when we're reviled, we revile back. <laughs> no, nope. we bless. Then he says when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. It's literally the idea of consoling somebody. So I've received slander from a person, and rather than slander back, I try to comfort them. How does that come about? It comes about because I've been entrusted with the gospel and there's a master that I serve and I don't live to not be slandered. I live as one who walks with him and by the grace of God, I'm looking for his evaluation, not theirs. He ends with a really, really uh, vivid description here. He says, we have become the scum of the world. That, that is filth that's scrapped off of um, kind of like the bottom of a trash can, so to speak. Or if you think of just the, when you think of the, of the stuff you would scrape off of a dirty shoe, that's the picture of that. Paul's saying, that's us. And then he goes on to say, the dregs of all things, even until now. Uh, the dregs would be something at the very bottom of the glass. If you're you know, drinking some sort of fruit juice, it's just sort of the remains at the bottom. That's us, he says. 
And then in verse 14, and that's going to be more for next week, but it says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So you can see, I'm writing these things to you, and I've done this sarcastic sort of kind of confrontation of you, not because I want to shame you, but because instead I want to demonstrate my love for you, and I want to encourage you to turn. Hasty judgments distort things, and they come from a distortion within of the gospel, of what life is, of what it means to walk with the Lord. And so he's calling us away from that by remembering God's people, especially leaders, answer to God alone. God's penetrating judgment comes in the day of the Lord. And the gift of the gospel humbles all who receive it. Isn't that amazing? He confronts them by humbling them. But he also reveals how he and the apostles have also been humbled in the same moment with the same words. So may we, brothers and sisters, be clear of what God's entrusted to us, of who we're serving, and may he protect us from engaging in hasty judgments with one another, with leaders, or with anyone. That he would be glorified and that we would continue to declare with boldness and grace the word of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you would uh, help us in these things, open our hearts to see where you are calling us to to, uh, turn away from our tendency towards Um, hasty judgments, and to turn towards seeing all things in light of uh, the stewardship we've received from you and your soon coming return. We praise you for your grace and that it humbles us even as we consider it. Cause us to walk in a way that glorifies you as your stewards and as those who want to see others come to know you through this beautiful gospel. And if there are any here with us today, either online or here in this room or outside, uh, who are considering the things of you, Lord, may this be even that, that day, that time that they would turn to you and trust in you for the salvation that comes by grace. Because you lived that perfect life and you died that death that we deserve. And you rescue all kinds of sinners, even those who, who wrestle with hasty judgments. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.